This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Standing on the waters, casting your bread, while the eyes of the idol with the iron head are glowing. Distant ships sailing into the mist. You were born with a snake in both of your fists while a hurricane was blowing. Freedom just around the corner for you, but with truth so far off, what good will it do? This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about Joker Man, the lead-off track from 1983's Infidels, is fellow Bobcat Mark Copley. Hi, Mark. Hi. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's great. I'm excited to talk about Dylan and Joker Man. Absolutely. There is, and we, we've talked about this song once before, but there is a lot to go over here, and that was a few years ago already. And you very specifically wanted to talk about this song. You made a case for yourself as why you wanted to talk about this song. So I'm, I'm eager to hear all that. But of course, I got to start at the beginning. So Mark, how did you become a fan of Bob? Well, I kind of came in the uh, side door uh, with the Bob Dylan. I came in to know really to get into Bob Dylan and his music through his gospel albums to begin with. The way it all kind of happened was Bob Dylan became a Christian about the same time that I did. I was a senior in high school at the time. It was in night. Uh, 1978, and uh, I had uh, connected with uh, some kids in a youth group, and they invited me to church, and I just, I came there, and having had some preaching from my childhood, you know, I realized that I needed a need in my life. I wanted to get, get right with God, and didn't take long before they helped me to do that. Uh, there was a woman involved, which sounds a lot like Dylan's Precious Angel or Covenant Woman. <laughs> and uh, I uh, was in love for, with her, and she uh, she had a lot to do with praying and getting me to a place where I was ready to listen and uh, made made a decision for Christ in my life. Now, that was a long, long time ago. But uh, I went to a, uh, as I graduated from high school, I went to a, a small Christian college in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Trebekah is the name of it, still there. And I uh, walked into a chapel when our freshman went one Monday on our freshman year. We had to go to chapel like three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I think it was. And I went on a Monday and to the sound of Slow Train Coming Hmm. play. And that was different than the music we normally had in chapel, but Mondays, the students <laughs> were in charge. It was kind of like student chapel that was led by the students. And uh, one of the upperclassmen got up and told about his love for Bob Dylan. And listen, this is Bob Dylan singing, and Bob Dylan has become a Christian. I was like, well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and <laughs> so that was kind of my, uh, that became, I didn't have a lot of money back then, but I went out and got that album, you know, Slow Train Coming, and it did now just, captured my heart you know i heard dylan his, his like his top 40 stuff i didn't grow up on fm radio but with am radio didn't have a lot of albums so i heard things like blowing in the wind and lay lady lay or knocking on heaven's door and then later in my teens the aor fm stations uh played started with the classic rock format and I, I caught up on some of dylan that way but uh, I, lo- I love Slow Train Coming. I loved uh, Saved a little less because it was so rich in the uh, gospel, you know, background. And then the uh, uh, Shot of Love was something that had to grow on me, but I, I did come to love it as well. And um, we went, like in 1982, I uh, went in on a trip where we were away for a summer with a group of other college students. And some older guy in the church handed us a, a cassette with the bootleg of Dylan uh, live, doing a lot of things from uh, Blood on the Tracks and stuff. And then I just really flipped out on Dylan. I had you know listened to his spiritual stuff because I had an interest in that. But man, I always loved 
poetry. I love rhyming. Uh, my music was mostly uh, singer-songwriters and folk singers and stuff like that. But when Dylan started singing about the things he sings, uh, you know, all the other the broad range of things that he sings about, that really made me a Dylan fan. So I had the joy of kind of like going back through the catalog from like 19... The night about 1980 back and discovering those things for the first time. And that's been great. And then I bought every Dylan album since then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that, that, that you liked saved a little less than slow train coming. And you just said about, cause it was more gospel. Was it the sound of saved? Was it the, the message? Was it the songs? What was it about that record that didn't quite connect well, to you the, the way slow train did? Like when I was a kid, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, I, I like rock and roll, you know what I mean? Like, I was a Kiss freak when I was 14, and, you know, <laughs> and wall was covered with Kiss pictures, you know? And <laughs> I, I love some of those groups, uh, you know, that were real popular in the late 70s and all. And what I had when I became a Christian was like, uh, what are you going to do with the devil's music, you know, <laughs> at that time? And uh, so, man, I was from the uh, southwestern corner of Virginia, and uh, that's that's gospel territory. I mean, Falwell's just up the road, you know, that kind of thing. And the music that people listened to when they became a Christian was was Southern gospel. And I could not hang with that at all. I just couldn't. You know, that's, close, that's like listening to Barbershop Quartet or something, you know. <laughs> my, my dad loves it, still loves it, you know. But, man, I just I couldn't do it, you know. And, I, and yet I had this conscience about, dude, you know, when when Paul Stanley sings about love guns, he's not really talking about a, a firearm, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So I would, I would uh, struggle, like, should I really listen to this? So I went back and forth. When I went to that little college in Nashville, first week there, they had a freshman get-together, and they I discovered Christian rock. I didn't even know such a thing existed, you know. And I just thought, literally, I died and gone to heaven, you know. <laughs> Because uh, the harps had all turned into electric guitars, and it was it was fun, <laughs> exciting, you know. So, and being in Nashville meant a couple things because you know, Music City, everybody that was touring came through Nashville, you know. So we saw a lot of concerts and more than ones I could afford. And then um, we were at a Christian college, and so we'd get a lot of these Christian rock groups. Now, granted, that was not still it still wasn't mainstream yet. You know, today, gosh, there's Christian radio stations. They play something called contemporary Christian music, which I call jingles for Jesus. Uh, just not a lot of meat on the bone there, you know. And just uh, it's become another genre, you know. But Dylan, when he played gospel music, it was not when he played Christian music. It was you knew where it was coming from. It wasn't coming from I'm going to write something that church people will enjoy and buy and come to see me in concert, you know? In fact, he just almost committed, he committed, uh, you know, career suicide. <laughs> he certainly put it on the line. Yeah. Commercially. No yeah. yeah. He really did. He put it out there and, and was um, treated you know, badly for it. But uh, so, you know, I knew, you knew it was real and I fell in love with like the Christian rock music. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't cool yet. In churches, and you know, the a lot of the older folks in church still thought that was, you know, God can't bless a drum or a bass line, you know, and so we would uh, we we would get to hear some of these groups that were just getting started as that industry started building up, and it was still kind of avant garde at that time to hear people playing rock music for and expressing their faith through through that uh through that music. So there was also this thing going on around nineteen eighty the late seventies, early eighties. There were other there were other artists, you know, in secular music who were becoming Christians. You know, Dylan wasn't the first one to cross over. I think he was the most notable and it cost him well way more than most people. In fact, I think some of the folks back then actually did it as a career move, you know, uh, let's try the gospel audience and see if I can sell a record, you know, much like making a Christmas album or something. Let's mm. make a gospel. <laughs> well, well, that goes back as far as Elvis, you know, but let's, let's do something gospel and see how it goes. 
of the Christian world, the church world, the milieu of, of Christianity at the time was this kind of uh, us against them, militant kind of thing, you know, and you, you, you see it and hear it in, in Dylan sometimes that, um, you know, that there were people in his life that expected him to just play gospel music now, you know, just play songs about the Lord, you know, you don't need to play the old songs. And then, of course, the crowds were, because of their nostalgia and their admiration for the Dylan that was, uh, wanted to, you know, wanted to tackle him into doing uh, the old songs. And well, Yeah, because he's got the greatest songbook in yeah. the, of the yeah. 20th century. So, yeah, right. I kind of want to hear those songs, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Now, I got to go see Dylan the first time I saw Dylan was in November of 1981. And that was at the... I guess the Memorial Auditorium in Nashville, 1981. That would have been the Shot of Love tour, okay? And that was wild. I mean, I grew up in a small town in uh, Appalachia, you know, uh, southwestern Virginia, upper East Tennessee area. And I was always, that first couple of years in Nashville, my eyes get big when I get to the big city, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> But man, my first Dylan concert was, I never saw such a diverse group of people in my life. I mean, I saw nuns wearing their full habit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and some collars too on some of the priests, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, there were those who looked like they came out of Woodstock generation, you know, the 60s, 60, late 60s with, uh, you know, what you would call hippies back in the day. And they were parents with children, you know. It was just the biggest mixture of people. They were young and they were old, you know. And I think back about that concert, I don't remember like a whole lot of details about it. I remember the people that were there. And I think by that time, he he was he did throw in, you know, in a measly way, he threw in a couple of his old songs. I don't remember there being a lot of yelling from the crowd by that time. Uh, Shot of Love was the third of his gospel. Words. Right. They'd have time to get used to it at that point. Yeah. And he was kind of like tossing out crumbs, you know, here and there to them. And so there wasn't as much of that. I I had a little, I had a tough time, like, understanding some of the songs that I didn't know as well. But that's common the first time you go see Dylan. Mm-hmm. And um, so... It was a good experience. It was puzzling. It was it was eye opening. I was just like uh, in Oz, you know. <laughs> it just was it was just crazy. But um, that was in eighty one, and uh, I, I just uh, I, you know I enjoyed the concert and looked forward to the next one, you know. But it would be years before I'd go back. I the second time I saw him was in Bristol, Tennessee, in in May of nineteen ninety four. Okay. Wow. That's a big gap. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of like when he had started his uh, never ending uh, tour kind of thing, you know, and it was kind of like a greatest hits concert. Uh, and I remember that being probably the most fun I had because um, you, you didn't know what to expect. You know, <laughs> I got, my wife had taken me there for my birthday and got me tickets. And we, um, the first song was Joker Man. And again, there's a wide diversity of people there. And this was in a, this was not Nashville, Tennessee. This was Bristol. You know? mm-hmm. So a uh, different part of the country and all. But the the thing that was most surprising is that when he started Joker Man, which I was thrilled with, you know, here came all of these uh, kids and teenagers, you know, running to the front uh, like they do when, uh, journey's playing or whatever <laughs> they ran down <laughs> front and they stood right up there under dylan and she cheered him on and were jumping and dancing and they weren't moshing but they were having a good time and uh and he did play i knew all the songs that time that was a lot of fun and then i saw dylan again in 2019 uh october 2019 in st louis missouri close to that's closer to where i live now and uh that was when he spent most of his, you know, the latest series concerts was, let's say, rough and round. He wasn't out yet. So that wasn't there yet. But he was playing. 
he was past the Sinatra stuff, which I was happy about. <laughs> you know, there you go. You got Dylan doing the, you know, he goes electric and gets everybody mad, you know, once, you know, then he goes gospel, gets everybody mad. And then he <laughs> decides I'm going to play show tunes and I'm going to play Sinatra, you know, and, you know, Dylan is just, what a character, you know, he's like made out of uh, Play-Doh or something, you know, he shapes himself into what he wants to be and doesn't seem to have a lot of concern if anybody likes it or not, you know, and especially he's gotten older, I guess he, he that's even more so, you know, but uh, this one is, is where he sat at the piano most of that tour, you know, and he, he played things and I don't know how much you want to talk about but I think that having that concert, I'll never forget, is he played Lenny Bruce mm-hmm. at the piano, which was a slower song. So it was really easy to understand and all. I'm telling you, there was no song of Dylan's that I probably hated any more than Lenny Bruce when Shot of Love came out. You know, I was, <laughs> skip, you know, I was, I had vinyl. So you can't just like push a button and skip it. You, know, so. you had to but sit I, there, listen to it. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I didn't, I was too young to really know who Lenny Bruce was. So, you know, since then I, I saw the movie with Dustin Hoffman and most, one of the most pressing movies I ever saw, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, so Lenny Bruce for me was like way back in the catalog, you know, but when he, something about when he played it that night, I got it. Mm-hmm. I I got what was going on there, and uh, you know I don't think I don't think Dylan will agree with anything I say about his music, <laughs> but I think uh, you know I, you have shades of what Dylan has done, and that he's opened people's eyes to things, and he's he was with, ahead of his time, and uh, kind of foresaw things that were coming, uh, and paid a price for it, you know sometimes not like Lenny's, but you know. But uh, what, a, what a weird song. But it got me emotional, you know, in the most surprising way. And, you know, that's what leads me to the idea about Joker Man, is that um, who tells the truth? Who's the Joker Man, you know? There's this idea that um, of the, the court jester, you know, who could say things in front of the king. He had to say them carefully, but because it was said with... Uh, foolishness and humor could get away with saying things. The kid who said that uh, the emperor has no clothes, you know, the jester, you know, and this Joker man figure still has a place in, in our world. This song is what it, what caught my mind about it. it I mean, the song I love, I love the instrumentation of it. Some say it's reggae, but I, I don't get that part of it. I know that one of the, um, other takes of it, you know, it uh, kind of turns up the reggae. <laughs> the uh, the drums, uh, the way they start out with that, you know, to tom tom, you know, <laughs> and then here comes Dylan's voice, and it it's just uh, it's just a you know a catchy song to me that had me from right from the beginning, you know. And this was the first song. This was supposedly when all the rumors were flying about Dylan of uh, oh he's gone back to Judaism or he's left the faith or whatever. Um, let me say about that, that I never believed or had a problem with that. You know, you know like uh, one of the books about Dylan's uh, turn to Christianity, uh, uh, Trouble trouble in Mind, points out that, you know, at no point has Dylan actually said, you know, like discarded his faith, you know, publicly or anything. But here's what, here's what I, happens, Rob. I mean, it happened to me, you know, and uh, I think it happens in any kind of mature faith, probably Christian or otherwise, is we tend to, when we embrace it, we tend to go to the extreme. Uh, we have a lot of insecurity about this change in our life. It throws us off, you know. Repentance is a weird thing, you know. It, it We really turn hard towards that. Uh, it's a hard turn, you know. And... And we usually have a community around us of people who are pushing us and, and encouraging us a lot of times out of their own insecurity to go, you know, be true, be, you know, you can't be too, too bold, you know, and that kind of thing, you know, so be bolder, be bolder, you know, and that usually when that happens, oftentimes 
people come to a place where they just uh, feel they can't live that way. You know, it's just too intense. And you have the uh, oppositional kind of approach to life that says you're in and everybody else around you is out and you're, you're going to heaven and everybody else is going to hell, you know, and you're, and you've got to be against this and you got to be for this and all the categories that are thrown at you. And if you don't get past them, I don't know how you stay sane. But I think what happens in a mature faith is that, that we begin to, God gets bigger, you know, uh, the God that, that we go after when, you know, like in a fundamentalist type religion is very small. He has to meet you at church at a certain hour, at a certain time, at a certain place, you know, and talk to you only from a certain book, you know, that you know, everything's narrow. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. What religion does is it, it segregates out to say that God can only be in the holy place. God can only be, he has to be in a certain place, at a certain time, usually with a certain person. Uh, always, almost always a man <laughs> speaking from a certain book, you know, and that's the only way you get to hear or experience God. And when you read, when you take seriously the story of the Bible and you start seeing that by the New Testament, God's opening up the, the doors and letting everybody in, you know, Gentiles get in, you know, as Jesus, you know, opened the doors to women and and you know to those who were uh considered outcasts samaritans and lepers and all those that were kept out of the temple so there's this broadening of god's mercy and his understanding and if that doesn't happen man christianity really is kind of a miserable thing <laughs> Uh, but when that happens, then you begin to see the truth in all things. Now, I think that was going on at Dylan long before he said that he found Jesus. He was talking about truth. You know, he quotes the Bible. He talks about things that are real and true and beautiful, and yet always with a strong sense of realism. Always, never like just, you know, flowers and rainbows, you know, but a realism to the truth that Dylan always has put in his songs. So when Infidels came out, I was, I was following him right on that path. And I don't think he betrayed anything. You know, in some ways, you know, certainly I like that album better than anything from uh, since Slow Train, you know? Mm-hmm. And over time, it was it's it has been one of my favorite, favorite albums. I've never sat down and ranked albums, but I know the one that I probably go back to the most is Infidels. And it's the only one my, my, uh, the only Bob Dylan album my wife likes. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> she says, yeah, it's the one she really loves. She says, put that one on. But, but that's, um, that, you know, I see that happening with Dylan and I, and gosh, I just hear, hear that so much in all of his music. So Dylan's music's always spoken to me in a deep, spiritual way because he's changed the way he changes the way i see everything the way i see the world and i've joked it uh no it's not a joke uh sometimes i think that when our friend bob dylan passes <laughs> i would love to get in my car i got i got a convertible i love just getting my car with my phone and the whole catalog and start from the beginning and just drive until it's all done you know, <laughs> driving a long time. Yeah, well, <laughs> driving well, a very, well, very long time. I think I'd be overwhelmed, you know, too. But that's, uh, you know, that's the kind of uh, overwhelming kind of feeling that I have. I'm so thankful that he had this uh, this brush with Christ that gave us those three albums because I think they have such tremendous, a tremendous place. I think that. His catalog would be so much poorer without them, you know. Uh, well, some like to imagine and uh, imagine his catalog without it, but that would be very sad for me. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's part it's part of the mosaic that makes up his career. And there's, you know, we all know there's some amazing music. But what is it about Joker Man? What's it about this song? I mean, I I look, I've liked it from the minute I heard it. Part of it is it's so beguiling because you are not i mean most people are you're not really certain 
Mm-hmm. What he's talking about? Like, who yeah. is Joker Man? Is is he Joker Man? Is he talking to himself through a mm-hmm. third person? He's been known to do that quite a bit. Is he talking about someone else? My for many years, my instinct with the song was that he was talking about some sort of I don't want to get, I don't want to say Antichrist figure because that's a little uh, dramatic, you know, a little omeny or something, and I don't mean it like that. But he's talking about an, a negative figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is a trickster and can't really be trusted and kind of traipses through world history. And he, this song specifically mentions so many different things and books of Deuteronomy and the, you know, born with a snake in both of your fists, which is like a Hercules thing Hercules. that, <laughs> you know, right. It's this, so it's this figure throughout time that is sort of causing havoc, causing trouble, but, but themselves, but they themselves are also, uncertain about who they are and the damage they are causing. They are like, I mean, if you flip, if you have infidels on as a record, you flip it over and you've got man of peace on the other side, which is straight up a devil song. I mean, that is straight what that song is. Joker man, not quite so. It's not quite so certain. Well, that's the thing that, uh, that appealed to me about it. The symbolism there that he uses is so much like biblical imagery that's used in what is called apocalyptic literature. Now, the term apocalypse, we have uh, reshaped to mean the end of the world, but it's it's not the it's not the real meaning. I mean, apocalypse is a group from, comes from a Greek word that actually means the revealing. You know, the, uh, that's why revelation is called the revelation because there's uncovering of the truth, uncovering of showing something. And apocalyptic literature was actually something that was that was known in biblical times, say, well, kind of starts with the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and uh, goes on in, which, into the Christian period with the book of Revelation. But it, apocalyptic lim, uh, imagery or apocalyptic literature is... Um, very much in the background of a lot of Christian um, or Judy, you know, Hebrew and Jewish, uh, as well as uh, Christian imagery uh, that you find in the Bible. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not crazy that, uh, you know, that Dylan was so informed as a new Christian by the late great planet Earth. It was a, a book that was written in 1970 by Hal Lindsey, who yeah. I think is, that guy's still around, but mm. <laughs> every prediction he's made in the world has been wrong so far, and I'm thankful for that. But <laughs> I wish Dylan would have had a better mentors, you know, who kept pointing him to Christ and following his teachings, and you know, and that, and instead of uh, trying to pronounce the end of the world and uh, the stuff that had been taught in this best-selling book, but because really, if you listen to his raps, you know, that, that he has that uh, in between songs, which I'm glad they didn't put those on the, uh, on the box set, you know? Yeah. I get I'm, I'm normally, I'm interested in every single yeah. utterance that he's ever put to tape, but I could live without those. So yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I, you know, that, that was not a coincidence. I think they look back at those and they're like, Hmm. Yeah, yeah, let's not let's not let's not do that. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. And I, you know, it, it could have been the things he could have been saying were so different, but uh, and still been talking about his faith. But uh, you know, he came from a place of fear and and dread and into the world and all that. So standing on the water, casting your bread. Okay, you got you got that. Whoever you know, got, of course, Jesus stands on the water. You know. Casting's bread is appealed to uh, Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1, that says, cast your bread upon the water and soon it will return to you. And it's an idea of to live uh, with the, don't be afraid to risk and to invest and to put yourself out there uh, and that God will bless those efforts and that you'll, you'll turn out better off for that. So casting your bread, Jesus standing on the water, you know, while the eyes of the idol with the iron head. Now, there's no, uh, while the eyes of the idol with the iron hand are glowing, there's no 
picture of anybody at an aisle with an iron head, but iron in the scriptures becomes this, uh, you know, it's a big thing when iron was, it changed the age, you know, when it was the Stone Age, the Iron Age, and this iron became this uh, amazing thing for tools and for weapons and changed everything. So it's about about humanity, and iron is used symbolically in the scriptures to always talk about something really, really hard. So what do you got when you got an iron head? You got you're stubborn and you're you're hard headed, and so this is a picture of a the idol of the world with glowing eyes, which uh, Jesus has shown in Revelation with eyes like fire. But one of the things in Revelation is that there's always an imitation of everything that's good. There's an imitation of evil. So the idea there is you've got a you've got this uh, kind of a peaceful picture of someone standing on the water casting bread trusting in the future that's going to be better in fact the ships are sailing off into the mist the hurricane was blowing but he's still casting his bread one of the things with apocalyptic literature is that these symbols you know and just like you know we're talking about like how hard it is to know who's the joker man what's going on you know Mm -hmm. it's the same way when people try to look at the images in daniel and in revelation and say who's the Who's the beast, you know? Who's the Antichrist? And you get the same kind of, oh, it's this person. It's this, it's that. And you can't ever settle into it. Dylan is using uh, literature similar to that or poetry similar to that with all this symbology that can be figured out. And thank goodness that he doesn't say, okay, let me let me do paint by numbers and tell you what everything is. You know? Yeah, well, that's never going to happen, as we know. Yeah, yeah. I love him for that, you know? But that's that's the kind of thing that caught my caught my ear right away. It's like, okay, here's these symbols, and you don't know what this is, and you can't figure it can't figure it out. And there's this uh, other line in there where it says, "You you look into the fiery furnace and see the rich man without any name." There's another story in Dan again. It's Daniel. I think uh, you know the Joker man is a mockery, you know, of of a lot of things that that uh that are you know powerful in the world that seem to have a lot of meaning and purpose you know and yet uh the joker man is the one who reveals them who pulls back the curtain who shows this is you know this is all foolishness and i see dylan doing that in not just this song the masters of war and in so many other songs of his you know where he he shows us those you know, those things that the world puts so much faith and honor into and and he pulls back the curtain using the same kind of strategy that is in this ancient literature to show that there's uh there's foolishness behind it. The the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> I like the idea of Dylan as the Joker man. Uh I don't know how many people take that. I've heard you know, like I said, just like with the Antichrist, there's so many Somebody says the Joker man was Ronald Reagan at that time, you know, different politicians and things. But I like the idea of, of Dylan being being the Joker man um, because of uh, the way that he, he speaks the truth to that. I saw a documentary recently on uh, Don McLean's uh, American Pie, you know, and he he comes right out and says Dylan is not is not the jester. You know, when the jester sang <laughs> in a coat he borrowed from James Dean and a voice that sounds like you and me, hey, that's Bob Dylan to me. Come on, Don, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, he just he says, hey, if I, I he he said I said the birds, you know, mm-hmm. I said the birds. If I wanted to say Dylan, I would say Dylan. Well, come on, he's on the sideline in the cast. Who do you think he is? Yeah, you know? I mean, come on. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so. I, I think I think that uh, that Dylan is the jester. He's the Joker. He's the Joker man, and he uh, he dance. You know, he's dancing to the Nightingale tune. He might as well have uh, beneath the diamond sky with one hand and waving free. You know, he is the Joker man. He's Henry man. He's dancing and jesting at the way that that things in this world that should be taken with jest are being taken seriously, and things that that should be taken seriously uh, are usually taken as things that are, that are 
to be laughable or mocked at. And I think that's the place of the jester is to restructure things. And uh, of course, Christ did that in different ways as well. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. You know, we don't often talk about the humor of Christ, but I think, you know, when first time Jesus said, you strain out a gnat, swallow a camel, I think they cracked up, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the religious people cracked up. Uh, when Jesus walked into the temple and said, tear this place down and I'll raise it up in three days. Well, I don't know if they might laugh, but that's the kind of thing that gets you killed, you know. Jesus was mocked and, and, and those kind of things, but he told the truth. And I, I love the, the idea of uh, Dylan bringing this out for us, that uh, there's so much uh, there's so much to be mocked. The first shall be last, the last shall be shall be first. That kind of so. So to you, it's always been a kind of a self portrait. It's always that he's t- he's talking about himself or talking about a figure like himself that yeah, that does I these things that reveals the you know pull as you say pulls back the curtain and reveals things to be different than how we perceive them to be. Right. It helps us to see the the real reality of things as they are, and if we. If we uh, if we did that, it'd probably be two kinds of emotion. There'd be horror, <laughs> and there'll be there would be laughter. You know, I think there's uh, a um, a sense in which uh, uh, we take things too seriously, and there's a sense in which we we don't take things seriously at all. But uh, and I said, you know, Dylan wrestling with that in in his what do I do with this faith, you know. And uh, how do I uh, proclaim it like I've been taught that I should? Uh, and yet, uh, how do I remain who I am? And I think infidels is where he could kind of pull back the curtain himself and say, this is who I am now, you know, this is where I'm at now. And I'm just the Joker man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, I think part of the re- – I mean, it, it was an unlikely – you know, in Bob Dylan terms, it was an unlikely hit song. I mean, it was, it, it's always been like on any sort of greatest hits collection. They made a video for it. Or we talked about it again on the previous episode. I mean, the, the video, have you seen the video? I assume you have. Oh yeah. Yeah. What do you think of the, what do you think? Well, there's other stuff to talk about in the song, but what do you think of the video? Because some of the video, I mean, it's a jumble of images on purpose. It It is kind of, again, a, like a, a history lesson through various things. But there are moments in it that are sort of thudderingly literal. And if you choose to, you can say, well, okay, that's what they're talking about. I mean, when when he gets to the uh, uh, when he gets to the line about um, uh, you're a man of the mountains, you can walk on the clouds, manipulator of crowds, you're a dream twister. They show a picture of Hitler. I mean that you know that could yeah. not be more da, 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 da kind of thing, uh, and it and it and I think if you are trying to find a way into this song, which probably a lot of people are, and you see that image, it immediately gives you the sense of like, oh, okay, this is what Bob's talking about. He's talking about some evil figure, but the the music kind of undercuts that. You know, the yeah. music is so beautiful. You mentioned the reggae part of it, the the um, Sly Dunbar and Robbie Shakespeare playing on it is so gorgeous and beguiling that it some I've read some criticisms of it saying it doesn't fit with the lyrics, but then I, I tend to look at it as well. No, it, it provides that tension that to me makes the song interesting in a way that no knock on that song, the way man of peace does not man of peace to me is in it. We've never covered it on the show to this point. I think man of peace is an interesting song, but it's very one gear. It's this one driving beat talking about this evil guy doing this evil stuff. And it's interesting, but it's it doesn't leave you with a whole lot necessarily. But this, you're kind of like, well, wait, this guy sounds kind of bad, but maybe not because he sounds a little hopeless. He sounds a little. So, yeah, that I mean, and to me, it's that it's that ambiguity that made the song one of his, again, nominal hits of his career and in the 80s. The imagery, you know. Again, it's so evocative, uh, you know, makes my mind went places like that were just fascinating, but like the rifleman stalking the sick in the lane, preacher man seeks the same, who gets there first is uncertain. 
uh, that took my mind. You know what came to my mind with that is like the the movie, the old movie Night of the Hunter. You know, oh, great movie. Robert, Robert Mitchum and the you know the preacher man uh, who is to be feared. You no, know, but uh, they're both there. And then this line right here, I first time I heard it, I was just like, that's why Dylan is. Dylan, you know, and, and it's not that this thing says a whole lot, but just the the wordplay. You know, a lot of what postmodernism and literature is about is about just the wordplay and evocative wordplay. Uh, night skit, night sticks, water cannons, tear gas, padlocks, Molotov cocktails, and rocks behind every curtain. That feels like you're in the middle of a riot just by reading those words. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They just come at you like, like, and I remember uh, listening to this and telling my friend Dave, like, hey, man, listen, night sticks, water cans, tear gas, padlocks, Molotov cocktails, and rocks behind every curtain. It's almost like you just duck, you know, here they come. <laughs> the sense of dread that the night is stepping in. And this last part about the woman giving birth to a prince today and dressed him in scarlet, uh, that, you know, that certainly gives me pause. And I, you know, again, like in, you know, there's this Revelation chapter 12, there's this picture of a, a woman giving birth to a baby. And, and the moment she has the baby, there's a dragon that's going to jump out and grab it, you know, and and uh, he's rescued and taken into heaven. And it's just crazy. But I that brought that image to mind. Hmm. Uh, put the priest in his pocket. How many politicians have done that? Uh, put the blade to the heat. Take the mother's soul on the street, place him at the feet of a harlot. You know, there's there's pictures there, and maybe there's that. I mean, that's it. Maybe there's not just one Joker man. Maybe there's mm-hmm. <laughs> this is Joker man. That's Joker man. But I, I still love the idea that uh, of Dylan's approach to his art is is to uh, is to help us to see things in a in a way that challenges what's um, right before our eyes. There's something more behind it. There's a, a revealing that it's uh that's there and the, the the large point that that made this song as you know as a preacher and bible nerd and that kind of thing was just a, i think he's doing it the same way that daniel did uh for the exiles in the sixth century bc Dylan himself seemed to be dissatisfied with it. Uh, I, there's a quote from an interview he did with Paul Zolo in 1991, where Zolo is uh, for Song Talk magazine is is throwing these quotes at, at Bob and getting him to react. And then so Song Talk says, standing on the water, casting your bread while the aisles of the idol with the iron head are glowing. And then Dylan goes, uh, which one is that again? <laughs> and <laughs> we, you know, OK. And then song talk is that's from Joker Man. And then Bob says, that's a song that got away from me. Lots of songs on that album got away from me. They just did. You mean in the writing? Yeah, they hung around too long. They were better before they were tampered with. Of course, it was me tampering with them. Laughs. Yeah, that could have been a good song. It could have been. Song talk. I think it's tremendous. Dylan, oh, you do? It probably doesn't hold up for me in my mind because it had been written and rewritten and written again. One of those kinds of things. And we know that a lot of songs on Infidels suffered that. Uh, certainly with the 97 versions of Too Late slash Foot of Pride uh, mm-hmm. was one of those examples. Now, there is the alternate There's the alternate take on, on the Bootleg series. And those are some... That's a, I really like that version. Part of it is, again, it might be recency bias that, you know, the one that's newer is more interesting to me, but the, the alternate lines in the, in, in the alt take where he sings about, he says, um, the, the verse about so swiftly in the sun sets in the sky, you rise up and say goodbye to no one, no store bought shirt for you on your back. Yeah. One of the women must sit in the sack and sew one. First of all, just saying that is difficult, let alone trying to sing it. Just the S's and the S's and it's impossible. And then the bigger changes is no crystal ball do you need on your shelf. Michelangelo himself could have carved out your features. So drunk, standing in the middle of the street, directing traffic with a small dog licking your feet. I mean, that that verse points the song in a direction that it seems pretty clear about. Well, this this Joker man is... You know, it would be considered someone 
with deep trouble. It's the kind of person you see standing on street corners in New York with tinfoil hats, ranting about the FBI, giving them gonorrhea. I mean, it's stuff like that. And I could see why he took that out because I think it points the song in a direction, much like the kind of the Hitler graphic in the video. It points the song in a much more certain direction that the rest of the song doesn't, doesn't really fit. And then he moves on. Then one other verse that was completely removed is, well, the preacher meant stalking the deaf and the dumb and a world to come that's already been predetermined. Nightsticks and water cannons, tear gas and pedlocks, monotuff cocktails and rocks can't drown out his sermon. You let the wicked walk right into a trap. You give away all the good things that fall in your lap. That's incredible. Like that yeah. verse is incredible. And I am really sorry that that did not make it. To the final one, because I think that's just real powerful stuff. How would you think, Rob, how would you think that those verses change the perception of the Joker man and and that who's the Joker man? You know, if those verses make it in. Well, like you're saying, if you think it's a if if to you it's a it's a it's a self-portrait, it's a third person self-portrait. This could be this could fit that. In that it's how he sees other people. He's seeing how he's describing how other people see him. Uh, I mean, I've Bob has done a lot of weird stuff in his life as a, as a, as a public yeah. figure. And there are people who regard him as kind of a joke. I mean, we all remember the, you know, I can think about, uh, when he got the Grammy Lifetime and Achievement Award and he seemed uncertain. Uh, you know, and, and like, you know, there seemed to, he didn't, he didn't seem to know, was he supposed to talk? And you hear the audience laughing. Like you literally can hear people laughing at him. Like it's like, oh, who is this Joker man? <laughs> drunk guy. Is this guy drunk? Like what is going on with this guy? And so I could see this is him saying, this is how people see me. And that's not, not great, obviously, but this is how he feels he's being perceived in some, in some circles. Yeah. I love his line there. I use it myself sometimes where he says, uh, you know, my dad said to me, oh, long so good. Pause. then he says, he said so many things. <laughs> he said so many things, you know, perfect <laughs> comedy, perfect comedy timing, perfect yeah. comedy time. But I love the idea of the, first of all, the, the world to come that's already been predetermined. I just, I find the whole notion of predetermination to be fascinating and just hearing it in a song is kind of startling and just the idea that everything's been laid out in front of you. And I mean, if there's anybody that might buy into the notion that they have been chosen by the fates to be something, it might, it could be Bob. I mean, the guy has done so much and been so influential. Uh, I would imagine it'd be kind of hard to not think that you've yeah, I been, think, uh, you, you know, know. I, I, uh, I recently read the Bono autobiography and, uh, you know, I just look at what happened to those Irish boys, you know, and all the hmm. things. That, how does that happen, you know? And how does someone like Bob Dylan from Minnesota become who he became? And yeah. And really, though, keeping with the keeping with the whole end of the world type stuff, all of that is based upon a uh, determinism and a, uh, you know, that the future is set. With the book for them, for those that read it that way, then this apocalyptic literature is like a puzzle book to reveal to us how, what's all going to happen. In, if you want to, if you want to look at all of his songs as released as one long story, kind of like you were talking about getting in your car and listening to them all in order. Yeah. The last song before this one is every grain of sand, which featured in the alternate version that we eventually got in the bootleg series, the line, the perfect uh, knowledge of a perfect finished plan. Now that line got excised. Str- interestingly enough, it's back in. <laughs> and now that he's doing it on the Rough and Ready Ways tour, he's gone oh, back to them. Yeah, yeah, he's gone back to that. It's no it, in the the shot of love version. It's the reality of man. Right now, it's back to perfect finished plan, which I actually prefer. So that makes me kind of happy that he's returned. Yeah. But if again, if you wanted, I I like to. I've said on the show before. The last song in any given record to me at times, not every time, but a lot seems to point to the next album. It seems like that's where it's going, whether it's Restless Farewell heading into another side of Bob Dylan or Wedding Song handing into Blood on the Tracks or Where Are You Tonight heading into the, the, you know, the religious 
uh, stuff on Slow Train Coming. Uh-huh. You've got perfect finish planned. I'm hanging in the balance of a perfect finish plan. And now he's got lines about coming with a, you know, a world to come that's already been predetermined. Yeah. Uh, so I just find that really, really interesting. Um, yeah, anyway. Where the, the, the cover art for Save was, you know, was disliked greatly. Yeah, the original cover of the yeah. yeah. I, I saw in the uh in the booklet that comes along with the uh with the box set, the, the bootleg set, that there was a a different cover at first where the hand, supposedly of God, reaching down and there's multiple hands reaching up to that hand, you know. Whereas the one that they settled on is the hand of God with a finger extended touching mm-hmm. one hand. And it's, uh, it's been, was described as Calvinistic, which is the uh, predestination type theology. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, now you mentioned seeing the show, seeing this done live when you, when you saw him in concert, he opened with it yeah. uh, for a song that was a, you know, again, a fairly large hit. Again, it's been on, it's been on virtually every greatest hits collection that he's put out. The greatest is volume three, best above Dylan, Dylan, the essential above Dylan. It's only been done 157 times, which is, you know, <laughs> for any other artist, that's a lot. But for Bob Dylan, it's not. Uh, yeah. He's been doing it. He did it from 84 through 2003. So, again, it hasn't been performed in 20 years. It's quite the word salad. I don't mean that in a, in a nasty way. But, I mean, it's. I would imagine, you know, uh, as he's getting older, it's harder to remember some of these songs. And this one is kind of because this doesn't have a narrative thread. It may be a little harder to remember, although we know he's got the lyrics apparently in front of him on his on his keyboard. Um, it opened the set at Woodstock '94. It it is one of only two songs that are not from the '60s that headlined that set, and that seems to be a very conscious choice. You know, you're like, okay, I'm 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 now appearing at a Woodstock festival, and I didn't I missed the first one, but now I'm here for the second one. And most of the time, it's much more up tempo. The version for Woodstock, uh, I think is terrific. You can see Winston Watson behind him, you know, he, and it's, uh, it, it, I really like it. I mean, again, it turns it more into a rocking number. And I actually saw him do it live myself once, uh, that same year in 94 when I went to see him in Ohio. And he, he, I think he opened the show, um, with that. And of course, probably, you know, among us dying in the wall bobcats, the most famous live version is the Letterman version that yeah. he did, which is, shortened (laughs) yeah it kicks ass i mean it just kicks it i mean we did a whole episode a couple of years a bunch of years ago about that set and it to me it still remains one of the great weird moments of his career that he pops up on letterman almost a full like six months after infidels had already come out i mean this was march of 84 infidels had already come out and then he decides to sing one cover that's not on the record and then do two songs from Infidels in a, in a way that don't sound anything like Infidels. And the, the way that the, um, the band kicks into, you know, when he's like, Joker man, dance, boom, the Nightingale tune, boom, it, you are like, holy, this thing is amazing. <laughs> like it's just absolutely unbelievable. And I, you know, we'll never know how many copies of Infidels he moved from that. Uh, appearance. I mean, Letterman has the record and holds it up, but I have to think that right. if you're a casual Dylan fan, or maybe even a not a Dylan fan at all, you're just a, you know like, oh, that was really good. And then you buy the record, and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, like that's not this. What's going on? Yeah, back to the reggae. I love this. I love this song. I think it's a terrific song. Again, it's one of the, I think it's one of the great songs in his in 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 his career. But man, yeah, when he was able to cut it down to three minutes and change and just punk it up, it is just unreal. And I'm pretty, I'm sure I've told the story before, probably even on the previous Jokerman episode, but I, the, I love the story that I heard from many years ago from, uh, Wyclef Jean that he talked about that his brother came home from college. He was just, I guess, still in high school and his oh. brother came home from college in 1983 with infidels. Mm-hmm. And Bob Dylan was not something that was, showed up much in his house and he you know his brother comes home with this record and he's like what is this you know like what what do you listen to this guy for and he said he puts joker man on and he and his first reaction was what is this and then he said it turned into what is this 
you know, like it just got its hooks into him. Yeah. And he became a fan at that point. I mean, it, you know, Bob's even in one of Wyclef John's videos for Pete's. Um, but I love that. I love that the idea that you're kind of like looking at this, like, ah, this old, this old white guy. And I, you know, really? Why, why is my brother listening to this? And then you hear this record and you're like, Oh my God, what? <laughs> this is not what I expected. So Joker man, it really does work on people that, uh, again, Bob, we don't even know Bob Dylan a whole lot. But it, you know, it again remains kind of as one of more one of his more famous songs. Well, when I when I saw him in '94, I couldn't have been more delighted or surprised when he hit it. Start out with that. Yeah, you're not expecting it. You're absolutely not expecting it. No, um, not at all. You know, I, I thought maybe uh, you know, like a Rolling Stone or some, you know. But uh, boy, I loved it. And then to I, see the young people come running down front like it was an evangelistic crusade or something. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I looked up the set list of that show you mentioned that you were at and uh-huh. he, the second song was senior. I thought, uh-huh. man, that's a, that's a hell of a one, two punch for yeah. a concert to do Joker man and senior like, woo. Okay. We're, and then the rest of it is a lot more hits, but yeah, I was like, wow, that's a, that's, that's a gutsy way to open a, open a show. It remains. I listened to it a bunch, you know, in preparation again. I mean, I, there's no Bob Dylan song that's that far from my my ears in any given moment. But specifically, I went and listened to Joker Man for this, and I just was like, yeah, it's just – and the way it builds, and I mean, when he starts about, you know, put the blade to the heat and make – as you mentioned, the motherless street, the street of a harlot. It builds and it builds, and you feel like this is – there's something here being revealed. I'm not sure what it is, but it sounds important. It sounds – consequential you know the mystery of it you know yeah who what and who is he talking about yeah you know the the connection that that i made with you know with apocalyptic literature and scripture you know that just comes out of my vocation and what i do but but i think it it's just a delightful song and i i get the same kind of picture that i get in uh tambourine man you know with Mm -hmm. the, the dancing Beneath the diamond sky, with one hand waving free, Joker Man dances too. Now you mentioned uh, that that friend in your church group that introduced you to Bob through Slow Train Coming. As both a DJ and a minister, have you had a, an opportunity to do that? Have you tried to do that? Have you ever oh, yeah. introduced somebody to to Bob? Uh, oh yeah, well yeah, I've done that, and we played song. I played his songs in um, in church and in youth groups when i was in college we had a group that went around and and uh sang for youth groups and stuff and we got just a tremendous opportunity one of those things like wow we get to do this we got asked to go play at a high school and they this was a high school in maryville tennessee and they had a uh, they had a club day and uh of course now again this is in the bible belt but <laughs> Uh, they had a club day and what they had done the largest club in the school was the fellowship of Christian athletes. And so they got the auditorium and they just kind of made an announcement that if, if, uh, if anybody, if nobody got to uh, had a club, you know, they could go to the auditorium and sit in on the fellowship of Christian athletes. So our band uh, was asked through a connection to come and, and play there and so we we play. We started off with "Gotta Serve Somebody," uh, <laughs> I think, and I think we did "I Believe in You" at some point. But you know, and then a lot of the Christian songs that were popular at that time uh, for young people. And um, you know, so we were playing in front of six hundred high school students, not in a church, but in a high school. And then in the churches that I pastored, I was part of a generation of pastors that churches started doing contemporary music or you know christian music with drums and guitars and all of that we fought those battles you know but uh in in both uh in oh gosh two of the churches that i pastored we switched to that kind of music and and did dylan songs we did you know gotta serve somebody and uh those some of those songs off the slow train and saved, um, man, I said that saved was my, probably my least favorite, but, uh, I certainly love saving grace and, um, pressing on, ah, pressing oh, on, love pressing I wanted, on. I wanted to say this. 
the uh, in the garden. In the garden is a song that just ought to just you you know what it's like. It's like that old traditional or spiritual song. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Which asks this rhetorical question over and over again. You know, were you there when he crucified my Lord? Were you there when he rose up from the grave? You know, it goes just climax to that. The Dylan song does all of that and more by asking this these profound questions about how people saw Jesus in the garden and at the cross and, of course, uh, after the resurrection. And, uh, man, I can't, that song is something else, you know, in terms of, from a Christian standpoint that has a, you know, that has a, <laughs> that uh, has a stake in the game, you know, that that song very important <laughs> you know i know it's never gonna be a uh you know hit but i and i love you know i loved when he did that with on the on the tom petty tour i saw the, the video of that and when he talks about christ as his hero you know i thought that was pretty cool mm. but uh yeah that's 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 a great song well, Mark, uh, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. Again, the Joker Man's a big subject. It's a big song. There's a lot in there. And, uh, I, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm as, as, you know, I age, uh, <laughs> as we all age, songs change, songs get different. Uh, some, some Bob songs, some stay the same, but, uh, but a lot of songs can sort of morph as they go on. And there's, I, I feel like I'm closer in my mind to what Joker Man means to me than I was before. I think otherwise I just like the tune and it was interesting to kind of sing out loud. I think I, again, I maybe have a better handle on it for myself now, but you, you know what? A couple of years, I might just change my mind. I might slip back and be like, no, now I'm, now I'm lost again. I don't, <laughs> I don't know it's the way it works with his, with his stuff sometimes. But anyway, thank you for doing this. Uh, thank you, Rob. I, I really enjoyed uh, doing it. It's a real privilege. So uh, I have to ask you our, one of the standard exit questions. And for you, since you're new to the show, I'll ask you what, if there's any session recording session, that Bob has ever done that you could sit in on, just be a fly on the wall for, what would it be? I think it would have to be Slow Train. The assembly of that particular band and musicians and the uh, muscle, muscle Shoals, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That would just have been a really exciting thing. And I, I would like to be in the room to see if there was tension there. <laughs> hmm. You know, uh, and... Did anybody know what they were getting into, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dylan had a lot of encouragement from the church group. And, you know, he was in a Bible study at uh, Vineyard Fellowship, Costa Mesa, I think, maybe. But, um, you know, and he had some connections even with um, some of those that were doing Christian music at that time. There were two connections that come out on some of the bootlegs later. One is that, uh, he does our uh, Rise Again, which was uh, Dallas Home. He was one of the guys that uh, we're allowed to listen to when they're in the Southern Gospel thing because hmm. he was just a, had a little bit of Elvis in it. <laughs> <laughs> that song Rise Again is—I uh, didn't even know Dylan had done that until mm -hmm. the, until the bootleg came out, and I thought, well, that was really cool. And then there's a there was an artist named Keith Green who died in a plane crash in 82, uh, who had a tremendous uh, influence on my life, a lot of Christian, young Christians' lives um, during uh, the late 70s, early 80s. And Dylan plays a harmonica solo on one of his songs called uh, I Pledge My Head to Heaven. And, uh, I think I knew that. I think I knew album, that. Yeah, an album called So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, that title. I remember reading that. It's been great talking to you, Rob. Forgive me for getting off. Uh, I, I was so afraid that was going to happen anyway. But I, I, it's it's the hey, it's the nature of the show. It's the nature of the beast. That's uh, you know, you you yeah. buy your ticket, you take your chances. So uh, why don't you why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Well, I have a I have a YouTube channel where I have a few. Uh, songs and sermons and ideas that I just throw around and it's mostly just fun stuff but it's under my name Mark Copley well again thank thank you so much for doing this I appreciate it and uh, thank you everybody for listening of course you can find this show 
and all the back episodes on our website, which is fmpods.com. If you have not subscribed yet to Pod Dylan Plus, uh, please do for just four ninety nine a month. You can get a uh, our premium episodes that we'll be doing. We already had one uh, talking about the Band of the Hen movie, and there's more, a lot of fun stuff coming and uh, other great uh, content on the network. So please go Check it out over at fmpods.com. And you can find the show over on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan. So uh, that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will see you later. Bye. Thank you, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, here's Bob Dylan.